Let Me Tell You a Story, podcast number 25. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Call me Ishmael. It was the age of wisdom. Some years ago. Never mind. It is a truth universally acknowledged. You don't know about me without you. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story with hosts Steve and Becky Lyle. Settle back into your seat, step onto your favorite fitness machine, or lace up your walking shoes, and enjoy stories from a variety of genres and authors. Hey, this is Steve. Hi, this is Becky. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story. This, our 25th podcast, centers around the decisions we make in our youth and their consequences, good or bad. We'll begin with Steve reading a chapter from On a Wing and a Prayer, the book I edited and compiled for Freedom Fellowship, a a Colorado prison ministry. This chapter is called I'm Not Going to Prison by Gary, an ex-inmate. I was raised in a Christian home, but started hanging out with the wrong people and getting into trouble even as a kid. I was very rebellious, and it hurts me to remember the things I did to my family. I believe it was my mother's prayers that brought me back. She prayed and prayed and prayed for me, and God answered her prayers. I was 10 years old, and in the fourth grade, the first time I smoked marijuana, when I was 14 or 15, I started using alcohol socially. At 16, my social drinking became a habit when I got a job at a pizza place where they sold beer. The manager was a senior in high school and a partier. Every night after we closed the doors, we drank beer while we cleaned the place. After I graduated from high school, I studied auto body repair at Wyoming Technical Institute in Laramie, Wyoming. For me, it was one drunken high party the whole time I was there. I got into trouble a couple times, but my punishment was just a slap on the hand. I'd pay a fine and be done with the problem. Following school, I returned to Colorado, got married, and had kids. At age 28, I lost my first marriage due to alcohol and drugs. That's when my problems really started. I'd get drunker than drunk and do crazy things, like drive as fast as I could around Horsetooth Lake on my way home from the bar. I started getting into more serious trouble with the law. I got a DUI, then sold my house and spent all the profit on cocaine and women within two months. I was caught driving without a license two or three times. Then I got another DUI. But the system kept giving me chances. They even put me through alcohol classes. After class, however, the students would all walk across the street to the bar together. I kept getting into trouble and eventually spent a month in the Larimer County Detention Center, LCDC, which kind of woke me up, but I still wasn't ready to change. I got out, got in trouble again, and went back into work release. I went through just about every program the county offers, work release, weekenders, straight time. Then I was given habitual offender status, which means that the next time I was caught, it would be considered a felony. Well, one morning, my ex-wife called me at work to tell me our daughter was sick at school. She was frantic because her car was broken and she had no way to get our daughter home. I jumped into a car from work and headed for the school, but I got busted because I didn't slow down for road construction. It was a God move, although I didn't realize it at the time. My arrest made me bitter. I was just trying to help my daughter. 
So I got my first felony, but I thought, I can beat this. I'll get a good lawyer. I spent $3,000 on a lawyer, and he got me a good deal. They gave me another month in jail plus a year's intensive probation where I had to check in all the time, go to classes twice a week, and be constantly monitored. I attended the classes and quit drugs for a while, but soon started using again. Thinking I could beat the system, I drank Golden Seal and other herbal teas I'd heard would give a false urine analysis. I even drank vinegar, thinking I was fooling the system, thinking I was so cool. I did six UAs without an apparent problem. After the seventh one, the teacher said, I need to talk with you after class. I said in my most cool way, What's up? Your first six UAs were hot for THC and marijuana, and this last one for THC and cocaine. I'm going to have to drop you from the program and do a motion to revoke your probation. I thought, I'm not going to prison. And ran to Loveland, where I hid at a guy's shop. I didn't want the authorities or my ex-wife to find me since I didn't pay child support. I was a deadbeat dad. I was a deadbeat everything. I worked for several months for the guy who owned the shop. He also sold drugs on the side. I'd work all week for him and still end up owing him money for my usage. It was awful. There were times when my heart was pounding so hard from the cocaine I thought I was having a heart attack. I pray, God, please, if you're really there, you need to help me. I can't help myself. One night I was driving to another guy's house to pick up an ounce of cocaine. On my way through town, I noticed the dash lights go out in the car, which meant the taillights were out also. A cop in Loveland signaled for me to pull over, and I did. But when he got out of his car to walk up to mine, I put my car into gear and took off. I started to chase, yet I was scared to death. My adrenaline was pumping so hard and my heart was pounding so fast I could barely breathe. More and more police vehicles joined our high-speed race through town. I remember a blur of flashing lights, sirens, and crazy driving, running cars off the road, going through stoplights, bouncing off curbs. I was lucky I didn't kill somebody, including myself. By the time I was halfway to Fort Collins, so many cops were chasing me, I decided to bail. As I turned a corner, I opened the car door and flew out. After a tuck and a roll, I was up running. Obviously, I'd seen too many cop shows. My car crashed into someone's house and I was captured within minutes. About a week later, I was released on bond while I was in Loveland waiting to go to court. And at the end of my rope, the pastor from the church I grew up in showed up at my hideout. I was frightened, but glad to see him. He told me the Lord sent him to me. Then he asked if I wanted Christ in my life. I said I did. He prayed with me and the Holy Spirit just knocked me down. I sobbed and sobbed. The system gave, it, system gave me another chance. This time, they put me into a community corrections program. I spent four months in jail waiting to get a bed in the halfway house. That's when I got to know Donna and other Freedom Fellowship volunteers. I saw the love and the peace and the joy they had. I went through the halfway house program with flying colors. I had no write-ups and was in and out in record time. I was able to stay away from drugs when I got out. But Satan knew my other weakness, women. He put one in my life who professed to be a Christian, despite the fact she smoked pot and drank a lot. 
I was around the booze and the pot for months without any problems. Then we started having troubles in our relationship. On top of that, I saw my ex-wife and my kids during the holidays. That was painful for me. One night after Christmas, I got loaded, drank myself into a blackout, and drove without a license. When I woke up the next day in my own bed, I had blood all over me. I must have gotten into a fight and didn't even know it. When I looked out the window, I couldn't see my car, so I rode my bike around the neighborhood looking for it. I found it four or five blocks away. That scared me, so I called my case manager. Since it was Saturday, I left a message on his machine saying I'd used again and I was scared. I want to take care of this, I said. I want help. A week or so later, he contacted me and told me to turn myself in to the halfway house, which I did. I thought they'd send me to a treatment program like they had countless other people who used. That's what I wanted. But I was told, we've revoked you from our program. I said, you're not going to send me to treatment? They said, sure we are. Prison. You'll learn there. I didn't understand that. I felt bitter because it wasn't equal justice. Plus, I had to sit in the county jail a couple more months waiting to go to prison. I told Donna, that's what I get for being honest. I should have lied. Never said anything. They would have never known. Donna said, but you know what happened, and God knows what happened. God also knows where your heart is. You've turned yourself in, and he's going to respect that. She helped me get over my bitterness. That's when I decided to give everything, not just part of my life, to God. My ex-wife brought my oldest daughter in to see me at LCDC. I was happy and smiling. She said, Dad, why are you so happy? You're in jail. I'm freer now than I've ever been in my life, I told her. I might be behind bars, but I'm free. Standard procedure when a person first goes to prison is to be locked down for 23 hours a day. I was allowed out for one hour to take a shower and use a telephone. I had a Bible with me that I read and read and read. I also did calisthenics to keep fit. The isolation was hard, but it was good for me. It gave me time to think and get into the Word, which I definitely needed, and time to build my new relationship with Christ. God started showing me things. At first, Scripture was confusing to me. I didn't understand it. The Bible seemed to contradict itself. I asked God, Please show me something in here that's from you to me. I asked him for wisdom and understanding and to open my eyes to his word. As the effect of 20 years of drugs and alcohol left my body, I started understanding things in the Bible and I began to notice my surroundings. I saw God at work, even in prison. I asked God to let me be a light. Then the blessings began to happen. The guy started saying, Man, I'm having problems. Can you pray for me? Sure, I'd say. Come over to my house. Our cells were our homes. A prisoner's home is, and his privacy are sacred and respected in prison. That's all a person has left. I carried my Bible everywhere I went. More than once I heard, There goes the Bible thumper. I also heard, Look at him. He's getting God while he's in prison. You watch him when he gets out. I attended Bible studies and church groups in prison. There's no barrier between colors and races in those groups. We're all God's children. I caught a lot of slack for eating lunch with a black man or a Mexican. The bikers and the white supremacists would try to hassle me, try to break me, verbally and physically. 
A couple times I could have been in a physical confrontation, but the Lord gave me the words to say, Hey, God loves you, man. He loves you, and I, I want to talk to you about him. And they'd be gone. They couldn't handle it. Thanks, Lord, I'd say. After I'd been in prison six or eight months, I was returned to Larimer County for reconsideration. When I walked into the courtroom, I prayed, Lord, give me the words. Don't let me speak, but you speak through me. I sat quietly, listening to everything my public defender, who was trying to get my sentence reduced, had to say. The district attorney was upset. Oh, no, he insisted. You can't reduce his sentence. This man needs to stay behind bars where he belongs. After they finished arguing back and forth, the judge, who had seen me many times in his courtroom, looked at me. Looks like you want to say something. Yes, Your Honor. I do. Get up. Let's hear it. I told the judge the changes that had happened in my life. Then I said, I'd really appreciate it if I could get the sentences to run concurrent, get them running together at the same time. I had two two-year sentences that ran consecutively, one after the other. The first one was for my habitual offender status, and the second was for eluding. I thought it was kind of harsh, but I knew God had a plan. The judge thought about it and said, I can't do that, but I'll drop a year off your, seat, uh, off your sentence. I said, praise God. About a month later, I learned I was eligible for parole. My friends all warned me, nobody gets parole on their first time through. It's up to God, I told them. If he wants me to stay, he's got a reason. If he wants me to go, praise him. My mom and dad came down for my parole hearing, and we went before the parole board together. A single representative from the parole board sat across the desk from us. I had all this stuff to show him, certificates of classes and seminars, things I'd done above and beyond what the system wanted me to do. I showed him all that and told him how my life was changing. He just looked at me, then started ripping me to shreds. You do fine in prison, he said. It's when you, when you get out on the streets that you're a menace. He went on and on, and it got worse and worse. He even called me a murderer. After pounding hard on me, he started in on my folks. You did a lousy job raising your son, he told him. As parents, you're failures. My mom started bawling. I wanted to reach over the desk and strangle the guy dead, but I couldn't. God had me pressed so hard in that seat I couldn't budge. I bit my tongue, thinking, I can get through this. They're just trying to see how I react. Finally, I told the man, I'm the one who did these things, and I'm the one paying the price. I'd appreciate it if you'd leave my parents out of it because they had nothing to do with this. I made the bad choices in my life. I don't appreciate you making my mother cry. My heart was pounding when I walked out of that meeting. Well, Lord, I thought, looks like I'm staying in prison. After that confrontation, there's no way I'm getting out of here. I went outside and walked around the track several times to let off steam. About a week later, however, I was told, they accepted your parole. Praise God, I exclaimed. I guess I'm ready to go. But it took three or four months before I was released. About a month later, they sent me to a pre-release facility where they provided classes to get inmates ready to reintegrate into society. When I got to pre-release, I called my old boss in Fort Collins, told him I was getting out soon and asked if I could have my old job back. He said, sure, come on back. 
After I was released, I lived with my parents in Loveland and rode my bike to Fort Collins every day for work. After several weeks of commuting by bicycle, I said, Lord, I know what you want me to do, but you've got to open doors for me. I need a place to live closer to work. I had looked all over for a place, and I was getting frustrated. One day, as I walked outside after work to get on my bike, I looked across the street and saw a sign in front of some apartments that read, Faith Property Management. It was like God was saying, Have faith. Wait on me. I called the number on the sign and moved in two days later. Now I'm off parole. God has brought a wonderful Christian wife into my life, and he has provided me with a nice home and shop in Johnstown. People still ask me how I got my house with my bad credit. There's no way in the world's eyes I could have done it. I tell them that the glory goes to God. He gets the praise and glory for anything good in my life. My daughters are 14 and 19. It's been a hard road for them because I was never a father to them. My oldest one gave her life to the Lord and is doing awesome. I'm just waiting on God for my youngest daughter. I have new kids in my new marriage. God says a happy man is a man with a full quiver of children. I've got a full quiver and I am happy. I also have great Christian friends in Johnstown. I attend a Tuesday morning Bible study each week with several guys. The Lord is unlocking the doors of my understanding through that group. I'm slowly but surely beginning to give back. I've been accepted to go into LCDC as a Freedom Fellowship volunteer, and I'll soon be allowed, allowed to go into the prisons. I love going to the jail because I'm blessed so much. I get back a hundredfold more than I give. I'm anxious to get back into prison. I want to show those guys, hey, God loves all of us, and he doesn't want to see anybody go to hell. Maybe I can influence some people others can't. I've got a record. I've got the tattoos. I've done it all. I'm here to say God was gracious enough to reach down and grab hold of me because he loves me and has a purpose for my life. He has a purpose for everybody. We just need to let him show us what it is. While we're talking about prison, here's a quote from Joe Martin. If it weren't for my lawyer, I'd still be in prison. It went a lot faster with two people digging. We're honored to have author Patrick Craig with us today. He's reading from his just-released Amish novel, the third in a series titled Amish Heiress. Hi, this is Patrick E. Craig. When I first started writing Amish fiction, I had a short story in mind about a master quilter from Apple Creek, Ohio, who found God, a little lost child, and a new life in the heart of a snowstorm. When I showed the story to my agent, he encouraged me to turn it into a full-length series of three books. Now, three years later, the last of those books, Jenny's Choice, has been released, and I'm still telling the story of the Hirschbergers and the Springers. The setting has moved from Apple Creek to Paradise, Pennsylvania, but the characters and the stories are part of an ongoing thread that has captured my heart and kept me busy since 2010. When I was writing the Apple Creek Dream series, I was going to tell the stories of Jerusha Springer, her adopted daughter Jenny, and then Jenny's daughter Rachel. 
But along the way, I fell in love with the character of Jenny, and then there were two books about Jenny where I had only planned on one. So now I finally get to tell Rachel's story. It's a different kind of story, but then I'm not exactly known in Amish circles as someone who writes a typical Amish novel. I think that's because I read too many Zane Grey books when I was a kid. His books had adventure, mystery, and danger. And for those of you expecting a typical lighthearted romance dressed up in Amish clothing, you will certainly find far more than that in this story, so be prepared. But Zane Grey was also one of the best romance writers that ever put pen to paper, and in the end, good Amish fiction has to have romance and plenty of it. So sit back and enjoy the Amish heiress, and remember, in the end, stories should be about love, love between people, and ultimately they should be about the love our God had for us when he sent his own son to solve the dilemma of the ages and bring peace and joy to our hearts. And of course, that's the greatest story ever told. The Amish Heiress, Part 1, The Key. Rachel, my darling girl, how can I tell you of the joy you give me? In the dark days when we thought we had lost your papa, I was adrift in my grief, but you were my ray of sunlight, and precious memories were bound into your very being. In all those years when Jonathan was gone, you were my rock, the one person I could turn to that always had an uplifting word or a loving gesture. I know your heart ached as mine did, but somehow you held yourself above the pain and you were always there for me. And for such a long time, you were the one who believed your papa would come home someday. That is why it surprised me when it was so hard for you when your papa did come home. You were 14, you were becoming a woman, and Jonathan had missed such a big part of your life. So you and your papa were at odds for a long time. I think that you had finally reconciled yourself to Jonathan being dead. You had moved on. And then when he came home, you had to learn that relationship all over again. We were so close, the two of us, and then there was another person in the house. A man who in many ways was a stranger to us both, especially on his bad days. I think you felt like he came between us. So when the opportunity came for you to go, you were ready. Too ready. Rachel, from the journals of Jenny Hirschberger. Chapter 1. Trouble in Paradise. I won't do it. You will do what I say. I'm 18, Papa, and my own person. You can't make me do anything anymore. Rachel, Jonathan, please stop shouting at each other. The cacophony of voices pushed out the open front door of the house like a symphony orchestra with every instrument out of tune. A girl stood in the doorway, pointing her finger back at someone inside. She spoke again, and this time her voice was low and icy. Mama, I hate him. Ever since he came back, my life has been hell. The word crashed down like an avalanche of rocks, and then there was silence. Doctor, you don't mean that. Please apologize to your papa. I won't apologize to someone that's, that's verrucked. Rachel. So, I'm crazy, am I? Well, we'll see. Go on. You want to leave? Just go. Get out of my house. Your house? 
your house. I've lived here longer than you. You come back into our lives and you think you can just take over and order me around. Papa, I don't even know you. Okay, I'll go. I'll go. And maybe I won't come back. With that, Rachel swung around and stomped out onto the porch, slamming the screen door in the face of the man who was following her out. She ran down the steps and out onto the lane and was gone before her papa could catch her. Jonathan Hershberger opened the door and stood, watching his daughter run through the field next to the house. His wife Jenny came out behind him and watched their daughter go. Jenny's face was pale and her eyes were red. Jonathan put his hand to his head. My head hurts, Jenny. Help me inside. Jenny dabbed her eyes with a handkerchief. You know you're not supposed to get angry. The doctor warned you that you could have a stroke. I know, Jenny, but I can't seem to help myself. I don't want to be angry with Rachel, but there's something in her that just pushes me over the edge. Jenny put her arm on Jonathan's shoulder and led him back inside. In her, Jonathan, or in you? It was a cold and wet March day in paradise. Spring had not yet arrived with her palette of vivid hues, and the predominant color was brown. Brown stubble, brown earth, dead grass in the front yard. The small swale beyond the pasture fence was filled with runoff from the winter snowmelt, and a few solitary white ducks floated on the surface of the temporary pond, casting their reflections on the leaden surface that drearily mirrored the gray clouds gathered above the Hirschberger farm. Rachel Hirschberger trudged down the path that led away from the house. Her feet sank inches into the soft mud, and the edges of her dress bore the stains of her ill-advised trail-breaking. Her face was red, and a single tear had coursed its way down her cheek. She spoke out loud to no one in particular, and her outburst roused the ducks from their peaceful repose to flutter a few feet across the pond and then settle back again. Why did he have to come back? Everything was fine without him. Now the tears began to flow freely down her face. She wiped them away, but others that seemed eager to mar the loveliness of her face quickly replaced them. Her dark, Auburn hair was held tightly in a bun beneath her cap, and the wool jacket she wore over her plain dress kept the March chill from her skin. But it did nothing to ease the chill in her heart. The squishing of her boots in the mud mixed with an occasional sob and the rippling sound of the little creek that ran through the cottonwoods off to her right played a strangely discordant concerto that jarred against the serenity all around her. Finally, she came to the gate out onto the main road. As she walked disconsolately down the asphalt, Rachel was absorbed in her sorrow and did not pay attention to the soft clop of the horse's hooves behind her until the small buggy pulled up next to her. A bit chilly for a walk in the mud, isn't it, Rachel? Rachel looked up into the kindly face of Daniel King, her friend from the neighboring farm. He sat on the buggy seat with a quizzical look on his face. Go away, Daniel. I don't need your indefatigable good nature right now. <laughs> indefatigable, yeah. Now there's a $50 word. Come on, Rachel. I'm your friend, and you look like you could use one right now. Hop in, and I'll take you wherever you're going and keep you tidy at the same time. 
Rachel stopped and looked up at Daniel. His handsome, beardless face smiled at her from under the black hat, and he sat straight and tall on the seat. Rachel's shoulders dropped, and she gave a sigh of resignation. She really wanted to be by herself, but her hike through the mud had worn her out. She climbed up on the seat next to Daniel. You and your papa fighting again? Yes, if it's any of your business. Look, Rachel, don't go there. You've spoken with me many times about Jonathan, so it's not like I'm prying into your secrets. What was it this time? Rachel slumped down in the seat. I signed up for another class at the junior college, a class in animal husbandry. You know I want to be a veterinarian, but my papa told me to drop the class. Why? Because Amish girls are supposed to stay home after eighth grade and learn to be obedient little servants to the men? Rachel looked at Daniel in surprise. Something like that. She looked again. Daniel wasn't smiling. He was staring straight ahead and his face was set in a stern mask. Rachel suddenly realized that she might have an ally in this handsome young man. He was usually so, so traditional. Why, Daniel, you surprised me. I wouldn't expect anything like that out of you. Daniel shook the reins over the back of the horse and relaxed. The smile returned to his face and he looked over at Rachel. There's a lot you don't know about me, and I'd be more than willing to share it with you if you'd, if you'd let me court you. Rachel turned away abruptly and stared out at the brown fields of Paradise, Pennsylvania. Don't, Daniel. We've talked about this before. You're my friend. But that's all I feel for you. Besides, I don't want to get married. I have other plans. Daniel didn't let the barbed remark ruffle his calm demeanor. So what are you going to do, Rachel? Run away to the big city and become an animal doctor? Wouldn't you find more work around here? Rachel turned back to Daniel, and now there was excitement in her voice. Don't you see, Daniel? It's not the 1800s anymore, even for the Amish. It's 1990. There's so much more out there, so much more to life than just a little farm in Paradise, Pennsylvania. There's music and art and museums, the whole country and even the whole world to see. I want to float down the Nile and see the pyramids. I want to go to the Louvre and stay there for weeks. I want to torment the guards at Buckingham Palace and see if I can make them smile. Daniel, don't you ever want to go, to see, to do? Daniel looked down at the reins in his strong hands. All I want is to stay here and work with my papa, and then when it's my time, take over the farm and raise the final saddlebred horses in Pennsylvania. Rachel gave an exasperated sigh. And that's why we could never be together. I want to be part of a much bigger world, Daniel, and in order to do that, I... I... Can't stay Amish? asked Daniel softly. Rachel looked at him without speaking. The answer lay heavy between them in a silence broken only by the soft clopping of the horse's hooves on the road. When Rachel banged back through the door, Jenny was sitting on the sofa in the front room. Her face was soft and sad. She lifted her finger to her lips. Rachel pulled off her coat and hung it on the hook by the door. Where's Papa? He's sleeping, Rachel. He got a bad headache when he got so angry. 
You know that it hurts him physically when you fight with him. Rachel looked down. She felt bad, but she wasn't going to back down. Mama, is he the only one who lives here? Why do we have to tiptoe around and make everything easy for him all the time? Jenny motioned for Rachel to come sit beside her. Rachel hesitated and then plopped down stiffly beside her mama. Jenny's arm circled Rachel's waist. She pushed through the stiffness and pulled her daughter up close. It took a minute, but Rachel finally relaxed and put her head on Jenny's shoulder. Soft sobs began to shake Rachel's body. Jenny reached over and stroked her daughter's forehead as Rachel began to calm down. I know it's difficult to have Jonathan home. He still struggles with the disaster on the boat and the injuries he sustained. He watched his parents die, and it hurt him so. I know, Mama, and and I feel sorry for him, but he's so hard to live with. Jenny turned Rachel's face toward her. Rachel, your papa was a different man for eight years. He completely lost any memory of being Jonathan Hirschberger, of being an Amish man, of you and me and our home here in paradise. I know, Mama, but Jenny put her finger softly on Rachel's lips. Let me finish. When your papa converted to the Amish faith before we were married, he came from a background that was very worldly. He was an atheist, or at least an agnostic. He tried drugs and different religions. He thought he was going to be a famous musician, and if he hadn't met me, he probably would have been. When he lost his memory, he went back to what he intuitively knew, playing music. He became famous out there in the world and made a lot of money. Rachel stirred. I know the story, Mama, but it still doesn't explain why he's so strict with me. Jenny sighed and put her hand to her face. An errant tear had attempted to run down her cheek, and she brushed it away. Rachel saw the involuntary movement, and her heart softened. This really hurts my mama. She also wishes things were not this way. Rachel's arms crept around her mama. No, mama, I'm sorry. I know all this makes you sad. Yes, Doctor, I am sad. I'm sad for the years we missed, you and I, with your papa. I'm sorry for the pain that your papa went through. And I'm sorry that you and he are not close like you were once before. But I am also very grateful. I thank du lieber Gott every day that Jonathan came back to me, to us. I thank him for the amazing miracle he performed when my heart was broken beyond hope. You must know that your papa and I were made for each other. We are two lives in one heart. It's a very special thing that God does for people. That is his plan for marriage, and someday I hope you will find the same joy. Jonathan and I had ten wonderful years together. It was especially joyful after you were born. When he disappeared and I thought he was dead, Jenny paused and dabbed her eyes. Rachel, when your papa came home, he did not really know who he was. He still goes back to being Richard Sandbridge from time to time, and I think that is what confuses you. One minute he's a strict Amish man, and the next he's a very easygoing musician. I know it's been hard. The only thing that has saved your papa is the ordnung. He clings to them like a life preserver, because some days... 
That is the only way he knows who he is. And he's so dependent on them that he forgets the ordnung don't save us. And so he tries to live by them as best he can to stay grounded in our world. That's why he's so strict. My papa went through the same thing when he came back from World War II. He was so devastated by his experience in the Pacific that he swore he would come back to the church and keep the rules with all his heart. He believed that keeping the ordnung would make him all right with God. It took a terrible tragedy to make him see differently. Rachel took her mama's hand and put it to her cheek. She kissed it. I'm sorry, mama. I don't understand this sometimes, but I do love papa. I'll try to do better. And I love you and will also try, doctor. The women looked up to see Jonathan standing in the doorway. He held out his arms and Rachel rose and went to him. His strong arms enfolded her and she saw the love in his eyes. She held on to him and hid her face against his chest. I hope so, Papa. I truly hope so. Thanks, Patrick. Now here's a short piece Becky wrote for Cup of Comfort's Women of the Bible Daily Reflections. It's called Dancing with Danger. One day Dinah, the daughter of Jacob and Leah, went to visit some of the young women who lived in the area. That's Genesis 34.1. When Dinah left the safety of her home to visit the neighbors, the son of the tribal leader raped her. Her brothers ultimately orchestrated revenge, but I have to wonder what Dinah was thinking. She had to know she didn't belong outside her family's camp. She had to know she was flirting with the enemy and dancing with danger. But she didn't anticipate rape, and she didn't envision the ripple effect of the bad decision stone she dropped into the pond of life. Her enraged brothers killed every man and kidnapped every woman, child, donkey, sheep, and goat in her attacker city. Her father had to move to ensure the family's safety. When I make a self-centered rather than God-centered decision, I dance with danger. Do I realize I might damage someone other than myself? With God's guidance, I strive to make decisions that reflect righteousness rather than selfishness. God-centered decisions bring blessings to you and those you love. last episode, uh, number 24, I read part of chapter one from my first book in the Kate Nielsen series, Winds of Wyoming. We ended with the heroine, Kate Nielsen, and Dimple Forbes, an older woman she had just met, walking on a trail from a cemetery to a river overlook. The trail wound through the cemetery and ended on a rock outcrop that overlooked a river. Bounded by a metal railing and topped with wrought iron tables and chairs, and whiskey barrels brimming with petunias and alyssum, the ledge looked as urbane as a backyard patio. Kate stepped to the railing. This is a beautiful setting. Residents of our little community gather here often, Dimple said. We have parties, weddings, 
marshmallow roasts, all sorts of get-togethers on this rock patio. Kate bent to sniff the blossoms in the barrel next to her. Mmm, they smell wonderful. I'm amazed the church has such beautiful flowers this high in the mountains, and this early in the summer. I trick them into early growth. Really? Though the effervescent lady intrigued Kate, she wasn't ready to believe everything she said. Dimple chuckled. Really? But it's no trick. I have a little greenhouse in my garden, where I start my own plants early in the spring, as well as seedlings for the church. Kate leaned against the top rail. Below her, hummocks of snow clung to the rugged mountainside. Water seeped from the crusted mounds and trickled downhill to feed a river that ambled like a lazy snake through the verdant valley. She pointed to barely visible buildings at the far end of the basin. Is that Copperville? Sure is. Rows of concrete cell blocks marched across Kate's memory. Patterson is bigger than... Bigger? Kate felt her cheeks warming and ducked her head. The town is smaller than I expected. Copperville was a fair-sized mining town in the late 1800s and early 1900s. Dimple swept her hand across the panorama. A hundred years or so later, as you can see. It isn't much more than a few businesses and a smattering of houses. I feel for those who couldn't make a living here, but I prefer a small community. Wouldn't live anywhere else. Too bad I left my camera in the car. My great-aunt Mary and my friend Amy in Pennsylvania would love to see this. Don't you worry, sweetie. You can get good pictures at the overlook up the road. Dimple patted her arm. Are you vacationing in Worm? Kate hesitated. She prepared herself to answer questions about her schooling and past employment, without mentioning prison, but hadn't expected this one. It feels like a vacation because I'm finally out of college, but I came to Wyoming to do a marketing internship at the Whispering Pines Guest Ranch. They're going to train me this week for their tourist season, which starts next weekend, Memorial Day weekend. If Dimple caught the Wyoming emphasis, she gave no indication. Good for you. The Duncans are wonderful people, and their ranch has an excellent reputation. A bright young lady like you will fit right in. Kate wrinkled her nose. Maybe, except for the reputation part, and the bright part. She'd done so many stupid things, like trying to steal from yet another church. So you know the owners? Dimple placed her hands in the pockets of her denim jumper. Laura is a dear friend, and her son? Her eyes sparkled. Michael is a remarkable young man, my adopted grandson. You'll like him. Wow, small world. Dimple shrugged. This is a typical small community, Kate. Everybody knows everybody in our little corner of the world. And everything they do. Kate stifled a groan. She should have stayed in Pittsburgh, where she was just another face in the crowd. Dimple tilted her head. You're a long way from home. Why Wyoming? Kate stared into the woman's transparent eyes. She'd come west to distance herself from her past, but that was a secret. Nobody, not even a kindly little old lady named Dimple, could ever pry out of her. Oh, I just wanted a change of scenery when I finished school. You made a good choice, Kate. Welcome to Wyoming. She motioned toward the chapel. Feel free to stop any time. The Sunday service begins in about an hour. I think you'll like Pastor Chuck. A bug crawled toward Kate's fingers on the railing. 
She brushed it away. Not that the pastor would like her. She wasn't ecclesiastical. The first word she'd learned in English 101 after Professor Eldridge challenged her online prison class to learn a new word every day. Over time, she'd become comfortable with multisyllable words and with attending church services on the inside. But she wasn't good enough to attend church with regular people, people who hadn't done all the bad things she'd done. Thanks, but I better not stay. I need to get to the ranch. The internship starts tomorrow morning. Vaya con Dios, Miss Kate. Kate cocked her head. That's how my Mexican neighbors in California said goodbye. In English, it means go with God. Isn't that beautiful? Yes, but I'm not sure God wants to go with me. Embarrassed by your confession, Kate turned to leave. Dimple grasped her arm. What did you mean by that comment? Nothing, really, Kate chafed against Dimple's grasp, but the older woman held tight. She looked down. I've done a lot of dumb things. I know God supposedly loves me and all that, but... Dimple released Kate's arm to gently lift her chin. God not only loves you, sweetie, he delights in you. Kate pulled back. Delights? Yes. Stephanie, uh, Zephaniah, he wrote a book in the Bible, said God delights in you and sings about you. That'll be the day. He's singing right now. Your ears just aren't tuned to his frequency. Oh, I'll have to think about that. Kate looked at her watch. I better get going. Thanks for the tour. You're welcome. I'll keep you in my prunes. Prunes? Oh, dear. Dimple's crinkled cheeks turned pink. I'm jumbling all my words today. Prayers. I'll keep you in my prayers. She waved her hand toward the cemetery. Come see me again. I live on the other side, just beyond those trees. I'll do that. Kate started for the parking lot. One more thing, called her new friend. Live your dream, Kate Nielsen. Every day. Indefatigable. Kate smiled, pleased to remember another word from English 101. Dimple Forbes appeared to be an indefatigable woman of boundless energy. She swiveled and treaded the path back to the chapel. If only half the people she met in Wyoming were as interesting as... She slowed, nearly stopping. What was that strange look on Dimple Forbes' face when they were talking in the cemetery? Like she recognized me. But that was impossible. Her arrests had caught the local media's attention more than once. But surely Dimple didn't get Pittsburgh news way out here, in the middle of nowhere... FYI, over time, we'll be reading Word uh, <laughs> Winds of Wyoming in its entirety. Chapter 2 has already been recorded on this podcast. We used it in number 3 when it fit with the springtime theme we had going on that one. Uh, for those who missed hearing Chapter 2, uh, check out Podcast 3, and um, we'll try to stay in order from this point forward. Let's finish up with a couple quotes. This one by Edwin Markham. He drew a circle that shut me out. Heretic, rebel, a thing to flout. But love and I had the wit to win. We drew a circle that took him in. And this one from Anonymous. It's a direct quote. (laughs) A boy becomes a man when he walks around a puddle of water instead of through it. And that's going to do it. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, happy reading.
Thanks for listening. You can find more of Becky Lyles under the pen name Rebecca Carey Lyles. Her most recent novels, Winds of Wyoming and Winds of Freedom, have both won awards and made the Amazon bestselling list. Steve, well, he just really needs to get his stuff published. If you have comments or suggestions, send them to story at beckyliles.com. Tune in next week for more tall tales and fun fables at Let Me Tell You a Story.